uh, today for you guys to get to hear from uh, Stacy Kearns. Many of you guys, uh, if you've been around Wellspring a while, you know her. Um, going back in, in Wellspring's history, her and her husband, Devin, uh, were one of the six couples that helped us start our church. So um, very um, important family to the history of Wellspring. Some of the seniors that we saw their videos last week mentioned uh, that they remember Devin and Stacy leading uh, the children's ministry on Sunday morning. So she was staff before there was money for staff. Um, so she was a volunteer staff person for a while, and then we were able to, to pay her for a while and um, enjoy just being on staff with her. And I just want you guys to know that a lot of the culture that we have as a church whether that's engaging with one another in vulnerability or in caring for the lost and the hurting. Um, Stacy was definitely one of the drivers of a lot of that. Um, and so a lot of who we are as a church and, and how it's kind of played out in its history um, has to do with uh, the study, um, the intention that she put to just learning more about God's heart. And then one thing I would say with, about her, and you'll see this morning, is that what she hears and she is convicted by, she moves on and puts into action. So um, super excited to hear um, her story this morning. You might have heard of, about the ministry they're getting ready to start called Sisters of Solace. It's been in the paper here um, recently. So she's going to share a little bit about that ministry and then how Wellspring might be able to support and care for her through that. So Stacy Kearns, let's give it up for you. Okay. True story. Summer of 2011, when I was still on staff here, we were doing a book study in the evenings. Does anybody remember Emotionally Healthy Church? We did Emotionally Healthy Church. Yes. Yes. So my friend Barbara Loritzen and I were leaving church one of those Sunday evenings, and as soon as we got out on the sidewalk, we encountered a woman on the streets who was like begging for help from just anybody. And um, she was just a right mess. And so we asked her what was going on, and she said, I just come running out of that house across the street over there. That house. It should look familiar. It's the new intern house. It's kind of cool how things can come full circle. Anyway, she wasn't around here. She told us she was from St. Louis, that she had just come up here to be with a boyfriend. She said, he's, he's trying to beat me up. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Not how we were planning to spend our evening, but we said, get in the car, and we'll figure out what we can do. So we took her to the only women's shelter that we could think of, and we got past the, uh, the first set of double doors at the entry, and that's as far as we got, because the lady on duty that night explained that, first of all, they were full. They just didn't have room for her. And second, she explained, uh, your friend is high, which we knew, and uh, they just couldn't make a place for her. So we put her back in the car, and we drove around a little longer and tried to find some options, and we didn't find anything that night. So we drove back to the corner of 21st and Jules, and we left her there. We just drove off. That encounter broke our hearts. But it also ignited this holy discontent, and it became the catalyst for us spending more time with vulnerable and unprotected women in our city. And sadly, this is just one version 
of a hundred stories just like it. And we have known since that night that we have to do something. But before we can talk about what could be if we did something, we have to begin by confronting the brutal facts of our current reality. In other words, we need to get ourselves kind of oriented around the current landscape so we can figure out where we're starting to know where we're going. So let's consider housing in our community. It's helpful if we kind of get an image of this. So let's think of housing as a spectrum. Have that? Okay. Okay. The left, or the beginning side of that spectrum, is immediate shelter. So there are various different models for shelter, but at times what that really means, the kind of the conventional model of shelter means that you get a cot for the evening, maybe, if you're at the beginning of the line, you get an evening meal, and in the morning, you have to leave. Now, there are other different models that offer longer stays and more services, but most of the time it means you have a place to stay for the night. An example of a more substantial kind of shelter in our community is the YWCA. The YWCA does an outstanding job, but they operate at over 100% over capacity all of the time. I am so thankful that they do what they do, but I'm also really sad that the need is so great. When they happen to have space, priority is given to cases of domestic violence. And that leaves the other vulnerable women having to rely on their survival skills to find some other form of shelter. So other forms of shelter in our community are the crossing, the cold weather shelter for men, the Haven House, also for men. When the Salvation Army reopens later this year, they'll offer nine family units and by family, they mean that you have to have a child in the mix. Interesting fact, to be able to qualify for HUD-funded shelter, you have to be able to prove that you are documented homeless for a year. A year is a really long time to be homeless. As we move to the right on the spectrum, beyond shelter, we'll find transitional housing. This form of housing is the longer-term, more immediate form of housing that also incorporates learning life skills to help its residents get back on their feet. My very good friend, Melissa Frakes, runs Pivotal Point, formerly known as Hillcrest Transitional Housing, which is doing a great job of helping individuals and families um, get up and going. The important thing to know about transitional housing is that you can't go from street homeless to transitional housing. This kind of help is a process that has requirements, and that's intended to ensure that their residents are at a place in life where they're both willing and able to do the hard work of moving towards self-sufficiency. In addition to Pivotal Point, the YWCA has its own form of transitional housing at, at Bliss Manor, and also the guys at the Haven House can transition up to the Judah House. To the far right of the spectrum is permanent housing. And that includes the obvious, renting and home ownership. Additionally, there are several options in the community for supportive housing through organizations like Catholic Charities and the Housing Authority. So, but what we're concerned about is this gap. The gap is the absence of immediate housing for women that goes beyond just putting them up for the night. A question that we often get is, are there really that many homeless women in St. Joe? First of all, if you drive around much at all, 
you'll start to notice that they're becoming more visible. The problem is that homeless women are really difficult to track and document. And that is because, for the most part, unlike their male counterparts, homeless women can have a survival skill set that allows them to get a roof over their heads at night. And that is a little unnerving. I cross paths with folks in agencies and social services who operate in this space every day. And one of the other things that I'm also learning is that homeless women will sometimes gravitate towards homeless men and make that connection just for protection. I guess it's very dangerous to be homeless alone. So yes, there are lots of homeless, vulnerable, unprotected women in our city, and the gap is a real thing. But here's the really important part. That gap isn't just a gap. That gap also acts like a barrier. These ladies need housing, but they also need all other kinds of support and services that are very difficult to get unless they receive some stabilization first. It can be really easy to assume with all these other forms of support and services in our city that anybody who really wants help can get it if they actually want to change their life. Do we have those up there? Yes, okay. I've definitely thought that before. But so many of my paradigms and assumptions about the homeless and the poor have been completely shattered just by spending time with them. And I've come to realize that if you don't have a place to stay, it actually becomes a full-time job every day to figure out how you're going to survive today and where you're going to land tonight. Survival today is absolutely everything. One of the most influential voices in my life right now is Father Gregory Boyle. He's the founder of Homeboy Industries, which over the last 30 years has become the world's largest gang intervention and rehabilitation program in the world. He explains it like this. It isn't simply that being poor means having less money than the privileged. It's that being poor means living in a continual state of acute crisis. This is what they have to lug around every day. Of all the things that I've learned in the past few years, my biggest lesson learned is that vulnerable women need an advocate. Struggling, desperate, hurting people can often be quickly and easily turned away. And they're just used to being told no. I've found, however, that when I'm standing beside somebody, we can get some things done. And it's not because of me, and it's not because I'm anything special. It's we all know to some extent that it really makes a difference when you have a friend that'll look you in the eye and hold your hand and promise, I am here for you. Today and tomorrow and the day after that. Acute crisis plus alone is a really hopeless combination. So that's kind of the quick version of what is. So what could be? About a year ago, Barbara and I started to become a little bit more vocal about our vision to help homeless women get off the streets. One of the first friends that we shared our hearts with was Jazz Nellestein, who is now our board chair. She was all in 
and it was time to start looking for properties. And really, the only places we looked at were old, empty convents. Like, who knew that there were just old, empty convents sitting around? But there are. So I'd heard this rumor that St. Patrick's down on 12th Street was going to put their convent on the market. At the time, I was serving on the board of directors of the Crossing Urban Missions Campus, and my friend Danny Gatch, the founder and director, knew who to contact, so he arranged for us to go see it. And we walked in this convent, and we knew that it was perfect. It was absolutely a perfect place to help women get a fresh start and be loved and cared for. So it was time to take a few practical next steps. So last summer, we gathered some other friends who shared our burden for homeless women, and we established Sisters of Solace. We're a 501c3 faith-based nonprofit corporation founded for the sole purpose of bringing hope and healing to women in crisis by providing emergency housing. We're constructing our operational model around our three core values, which are a commitment to justice and dignity, a peaceful climate, and grace-filled relationships, all of which converge to create a place of solace. So most of the uh, FAQs we get around this are some form of the how question. How exactly will you do that? It begins by meeting physical needs, starting with our sacred space. Last fall, we started meeting with the Finance Council at St. Pat's to begin negotiating the acquisition of the property. I never had any exposure to the Catholic Church before ever in my life, and I didn't really know what to expect, but they were really just the most lovely people, and we could tell right away that our hearts were aligned around taking care of the poor. At our last big meeting with the Finance Council, one of their members pointed out, he said, you know what, we have never done anything with the Protestants before, and uh, he's like, I think it's worth noting and celebrating that this is unprecedented and kind of a big deal that we're all coming together like this. Amen? I thought that was kind of cool. Anyway, so on April 1st, we signed a six-month lease, and we also have a sales contract to purchase the building. We've raised enough, funny, enough funds to buy the building, so we've set things in motion with the Catholic Diocese to move our closing date up to earlier this summer. Inside the building, we have eight bedrooms on the second floor, so we'll be able to make space for eight ladies to have her own room We'll be staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That includes a full-time program manager, part-time weekend and evening staff, and a resident trustee who will live in the studio apartment on the first floor. When we have room available, a homeless woman is welcome to it as long as she's not an apparent danger to everyone else and she doesn't need immediate medical attention. And she can stay with us as long as she is actively participating in her plan to move toward a greater degree of stability with the help of our community partners. Our community partners are those churches, agencies, and organizations that make their services more accessible once our ladies become stabilized. Our target open date is Thanksgiving of this year. So here's where it gets a little dicey. I am really grateful for this God-sized assignment. And I am really scared. As much as I want to say I believe and live like, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but gives us a spirit of power and love, 
I got to confess that fear is a big struggle. So I am not talking about the, uh, oh, hey, I'm a little outside my comfort zone fear. I'm talking about the awake at night, sweaty, panic, what are we doing here? <laughs> Imagine a thousand ways this can all go bad publicly, fear, that kind of fear. And I don't know, but you might think that that doesn't inspire much confidence, and it's probably not the kind of thing that more than conquerors say. But isn't that kind of the point of confession? I know that today I'm not who I really want to be, but I know that God is up to something. Devin and I have been starting to realize that we value safety and security a lot. We are risk-averse people. But we also know that God is slowly but clearly trying to chisel away that part of our flesh. Several weeks ago, I wrote down an insight that Bob put up on the screen. I wrote down, our problem is not, our problem is that our desire for a safe and comfortable life is really lack of love for our neighbor. I've been reflecting on that ever since. But at times, it's really not so much my, my desire for safety and comfort, but my desire for safety and certainty that stands between me and my fragile neighbor. So I'm confronted with the question, what do I love more? My idol of safety and security or my neighbor? In John chapter 10, Jesus explains to his disciples that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. We all want life to the full, right? Knowing that most of my testimony has grown out of the fertile soil of grief, I've come to understand that life to the full is full of everything. It's full of heartache and happiness and rejection and acceptance, failure and success, brokenness and restoration, and it's full of risk. Risk is an opportunity to trust that God's going to hold us through it all, even when the reward is nothing like what we envisioned. Last week, Bob read Psalm 42 and explained that David, when downcast, was talking to himself, trying to win the war of words in his own soul. Bob called us to engage in the battle within and remember the stories of God showing up in our lives. In the short story of SOS, I remember that God has pulled together the most unlikely group of people to risk and walk in unity for his glory and the good of our city. He has united the Protestants and the Catholics around care for vulnerable and unprotected women. He has stirred the hearts of civic and business leaders to give us favor in the community. He's gone ahead of us into some very worldly places to give us an opportunity to share our vision. And he's provided every resource we've needed exactly when we've needed it. As we continue to to risk and trust and take each new step of faith, SOS is very clear about what we're counting as a win. 
we're all counting something. Whether we explicitly say it or not, we're counting something that tells us whether or not we're actually doing the thing we say we set out to do. It could be anything. It can be revenue or attendance or miles or time or pounds. So, for example, at Wellspring, we're counting what? Who knows? Bob, did you know? <laughs> Stories of transformed lives is what we're counting as the win at Wellspring. So at SOS, here's what we're counting. We consider it a win to the extent that we can grow our network of community partners. What we can't count is the success of the ladies who come through our doors, because success is just too subjective and it's too difficult to define. Remember, our vision is to be advocates of hope and healing. So the more advocates we can bring alongside our ladies, the better we can set them up for a stable and healthy future. And there are a couple of reasons why we're counting our network of community partners as our win. First of all, we don't need to recreate the wheel. We intend to do our one thing and do it with excellence. And we'll make sure our ladies are surrounded by other agencies, churches, and organizations to continue to do their thing with excellence. We have zero interest in creating redundancies. We're already at work establishing our relationships with professionals in healthcare, substance abuse, child services, workforce development, law enforcement, city government, and others on the housing spectrum. And believe it or not, we've discovered a great spirit of collaboration and interdependency among organizations that care for the poor in St. Joe. The other reason we're counting our network of community partners is that the ministry isn't just for the ladies. It's for all of us. SOS doesn't make any claim that we are here to tackle the problem of homelessness, but we're here to care for those who happen to find themselves homeless. All throughout scripture, God calls his people to take care of the poor. And nowhere has poverty gone away. Maybe he considers the poor to be trustworthy guides for the rest of us. Father G suggests this. We are sent to the margins not to make a difference, but so that the folks on the margins will make us different. I'm convinced that we become a lot less judgmental and a lot less condemning and more compassionate and generous when we live in the truth that there's no us and them. We're all just us. So here's what SOS is up to right now. We have three major milestones on our critical path that we're working towards this summer. The first is to finalize the purchase of the building and continue to raise the money for our other capital expenditures, which include the security and code-compliant fire detection system that we need, some minor renovations, and the appliances, like zero appliances. And knowing that these ladies who are on the streets are having their vulnerability exploited every day, I've become a whole lot bolder about asking for the resources on their behalf 
whether that's money or time or expertise, these ladies need everything that we have. Um, the second thing we're doing is that we're building our network of community partners and to make those relationships very well-defined. And we're crystallizing our plans for long-term financial sustainability. I'll be around after the service along with several of our board members who are here today to ask, answer any questions that you have and um, talk to you about where you might like to fit into our ministry. So, final quick story. Earlier this spring, I was in the office here meeting with Sam Donahue and Sam Jones. And I don't mind being nosy, so I just asked Sam Jones, I was like, hey, I heard this rumor about you wanting to start a bakery. And she told us about her vision to take her love for baking to people who are difficult to employ and launch a social justice enterprise. As she explains her desire to create meaningful employment and restore dignity to those who'd been written off, part of me was really fascinated. But there was another part of me that would just sat there thinking, of course you are. Of course that's your vision. That's what Wellspring people do. The culture of this church has become so outward-facing and others-focused that sometimes it can be really unimpressive because it's just so normal. Not a bad new normal. We're all in a good company of risk-takers, amen? Thank you for letting me share our story this morning. I want you to hang here just for a second, awkwardly standing there, listening to me talk for a minute. One of the things I hope you kind of picked up on throughout her sharing this morning was kind of a process. There's this process that um, if we're open to it, um, we can all go through uh, in our journey with Christ. And the beginning of that process is kind of like this catalytic moment where God kind of invades our space and uh, disturbs us in some way uh, about whatever the issue might be that's going on. And so for, for her and Barb, it was, uh, you know, this, this woman who was in need. Um, for some of us here, it's been foster kids or adoptive kids or, you know, all kinds of different things. Uh, young adults who are just disconnected from the church, whatever it might be. And then the next step in that process, uh, you listened, was to find out more about the issue. Not just to make a bunch of assumptions and begin acting on whatever sounds good at the moment, um, but really digging in and finding out, well, what is the situation? What, what resources are available in our town? You know, how many women are really out there? And really begin to, to take some time to get your mind and, and heart around the, the situation. And then it's this process of, of, it's also been a slow process, right? And so you take your time and you pray and you listen to the actual people that you're supposedly trying to help, asking them, you know, what would be helpful for you? Um, what are some of the challenges you face? And begin to make this, this plan that hopefully is more helpful than hurtful, right? Um, and then at some point, you've got all this information, and a big part of the process is taking the risk, all right? You've got to do something that's challenging and maybe has never been done before in the way you're trying to do it. And you've got to lean on community and you've got to invite others in and, and just ask God to show up. 
um, doing something that you know is bigger than yourself. And then when you do those things, you end up with, with life-changing and transforming movements that actually really care and, uh, and help heal and, and change the trajectory of someone's life, we hope. Um, but what I love about Stacy's story here today and, um, is that she didn't wait around for Wellspring to do something, right? There's only so many things that we can do as a whole church, so many movements we can put our, our, uh, our shoulders behind. Um, God is doing stuff in each one of your lives, and you guys are spread all over this community, and, and he's given each of you a different passions and um, different things that disturb you um, than others. And, um, you know, our role here is just to come behind you and to put wind in your sails and encourage you and love you in what God has called you to do, not to, to start everything that everybody here gets excited about, and so it all falls on the shoulders of us, but for God to, to use you to go out and do something for us to come alongside. And so as you were talking this morning, um, it's kind of my heart as we move forward, Jesus at the end of his life, when he knew he was going to Jerusalem to die, um, he said to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans right? But I will come to you. And so he came in, in the presence of the Holy Spirit into each one of our lives so that we would have an advocate with us to walk this path that he's called us to. And so that's my heart today for us as a church, um, that we would not leave them as orphans as they're going out into this community to do something really risky and scary, that as a church we would come alongside and pray and encourage and support. And some of you might have been stirred to whatever today, give financially or to volunteer or just find out more. So I want to encourage you to do that. Last thing I want to do is I want Barb and Jazz to come up if you can. And um, uh, we would love to pray for you guys. Um, so if we could just have a few friends of these ladies uh, come up and we will just gather around them here and just pray for this work. That would be awesome. So come on up out of your seats. There you go.